remain standing for our sermon text from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Give your ear to God's holy word. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. And we ask for your help, God, in understanding it and believing it as we meditate on it. And we pray that you would open our hearts, even as you opened Lydia's heart, that you would open our hearts to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would increase our faith. That you would create new faith where it does not exist. So that we trust you more and love you more at the end of today. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Alfred Dreyfus was an officer in the French army during the late 1800s. In 1894, he was accused of treason, and eventually he was condemned in court as a traitor. And he was declared guilty of selling secrets to Germany. For his punishment, Dreyfus was sent to what's called Devil's Island, which was a French penal colony just off the coast of South Africa. And there he, he was separated from his friends, family, his country, everyone he loved. But while he was away, many protested. Many from his country, from France, uh, who loved him, they protested what had happened. And they demanded a retrial. Well, five years after his conviction in 1899... Dreyfus was granted a second trial, and he was once again declared guilty of treason. Well, the, the public was outraged uh, by what they believed was a travesty of justice. So later in 1899, the president of France pardoned Dreyfus and re released him from prison. He got to go back to his, his family, to his country. Dreyfus was not declared righteous. He wasn't declared not guilty. He was still considered guilty by the court, but he, he, he was pardoned of his crime and sent home. In response to his pardon, Dreyfus said, the government has given me back my freedom, but it is nothing to me without my honor. So he, he wanted that declaration of his non-guilt. So he's pardoned of his sin, but Dreyfus was still on the books, so to speak, declared a traitor who had just been pardoned. So the de declaration guilty still, in a sense, hung over his head. It, it, to truly return to the place of honor that he once enjoyed, he needed a 
new verdict in the court. To regain his reputation, he needed the public declaration of guilty to be replaced with the public declaration of not guilty or righteous. It was not enough just to escape the punishment of treason. So to, to avoid the shame of being, having been declared guilty twice, to truly be free from suffering as a convicted criminal, to experience the glory of being a faithful officer in the French army, Dreyfus needed the stigma of being a traitor to be fully lifted. He needed to be declared righteous in the eyes of France and her law. The Dreyfus Affair, as it is called, it illustrates the biblical principle that in order to be saved, to be restored to fellowship with God, in order to enjoy what Paul calls in what Paul says in Romans 2, the, the, the glory, honor, peace, and immortality that God has in store for his people, we need not only to be pardoned of our sins, we also need to be declared righteous in the eyes of God and his law. It's not, an, it's not enough for God to pardon us. To enjoy eternal life, we also need that declaration of our guilt to be replaced with that declaration of our non-guilt, that non-guilty verdict. To, to truly enjoy the freedom and fellowship with God that we want and need, you and I need to be declared righteous before him. The problem in our case unlike in Dreyfus's case, is that there's no evidence of any righteousness, right? We've got nothing to present in our defense in terms of our works, our righteousness. The, the declaration of our guilt in the heavenly court is true and accurate and just. It's a righteous declaration made by a righteous judge the righteous judge of heaven and earth. No number of retrials will help us in this matter. A, a second, third, fourth, or fifth retrial will inevitably lead to the same verdict. Paul's conclusion in Romans 3, 9 to 20 is unavoidable. All are guilty before God. Every one of us. There is none righteous. Not even one, Paul says. Paul wrote Romans, in particular, he penned Romans 3, 21 to 26 to explain how a guilty, unrighteous person can be declared righteous before the living God. To understand how this works, and we need to understand how this works, we need to realize that God is righteous and that there is Two, there are two sides to his righteousness. There's his judging righteousness, and then there's his saving righteousness. Paul's been talking about both throughout Romans 1 to 3. God intends to uphold both his saving righteousness and his judging righteousness. His judging righteousness is his righteous commitment to judge sin. His, his commitment to not let human unrighteousness go unpunished. It can't. It must be condemned. Paul refers to the judging righteousness of God in verses 25 and 26. 
which we'll, we'll look at in due course. The, the name of that sermon on verses 25 and 26 will be the judging righteousness of God, which Paul refers to twice in those two verses. Today's sermon on verses 21 to 24 is called the saving righteousness of God because twice in these verses, Paul refers to God's saving righteousness. And we said that the judging righteousness of God is his righteous commitment to condemn sin. Well, his saving righteousness is his righteous commitment to save sinners, to redeem rebels. In Romans, especially in our passage, Paul's telling the story of how God has upheld both sides of his perfect righteousness. He's telling us how that happened, how it's possible, and what our response should be. How we get in on it. How we land on the right side of the story that's being told. Well, if you have your handout, I hope everybody got a handout. Uh, It's a little different today. It it includes Romans 1 to 3. Because I want you to see, even if it's just at a glance, as you kind of skim it, maybe even looking at the headings I have, how Paul in these first three chapters weaves together discussions of God's saving righteousness and discussions of God's judging righteousness. Very important to understand this, to know what Paul's doing. His logic, his argument, and how it climaxes here at the end of Romans 3. Let me just give you two quick examples of what I mean. So if you flip it over, if you you actually keep it on the front side there, Romans 1, 16 and, 7, and 17, Paul outlines the saving righteousness of God. He says in verse 17 that in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's a clear reference to God's saving righteousness. Now skip down to Romans 2, 15. Paul writes, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of God's wrath, revelation, and righteousness judgment an obvious reference to God's judging righteousness and most of what what Paul says in these first three chapters is in service to explaining the two sides of God's perfect righteousness and these two sides these two themes come together in Romans 3 21 to 26, which really, as we said last week, is the pinnacle, the the high point of Romans, maybe of the whole Bible. In the first half of this climactic paragraph, Paul unfolds the saving righteousness of God. He's going to unfold the judging righteousness in the last half, which we'll look at um, not next time, but in two times. So if if you want to follow the outline on the back of the handout, we're at point one. We're we're finally on the outline. Saving righteousness revealed. Verses 21 and 22 begin to explain how God has revealed or manifested, shown, made visible his saving righteousness, which is the righteousness that he gives to his people so that they're truly considered righteous in God's law court. Verse 21, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested 
It's a synonym, synonym of revealed earlier in Romans. Has been manifested to which the law and the prophets bear witness. That is, okay, so he's going to explain in verse 22 what this righteousness is. That is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all and on all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now, remember back in verses 19 and 20, uh, Paul told us what the law is incapable of. What, what's the law incapable of? It, it has no ability to declare you righteous before God. And that's not its fault, right? It's our fault. But now, Paul says in verse 21, but now, apart from the law, now, the law couldn't do it, but now, apart from the law, God has manifested his righteousness that he had been promising to give in the law and the prophets. And those, those, those two words, but now, are crucial. They're, they're wonderful, tremendous, powerful, pivotal words. This but now is the reason mankind is not stuck in, in, the, in the hopelessness of its wretched, our wretched condition. These two words describe the great turning point in God's dealings with humanity. They're also the turning point in Paul's letter to the Romans. If we, if we hadn't studied everything leading up to verse 21, we wouldn't be in a position to appreciate the significance of Paul's but now in this verse. These two words take us from wrath to grace, from shame to glory, from stuck in the guilt and grip of sin to delivered from the penalty and power of sin, from declared guilty to declared righteous. It all happens right here in this but now is, is the transition to where it happens. And so how do we get the righteousness that God has revealed, that he has manifested? How, how do we make it our own so that we are declared righteous before God and in his law court. Verse 22 says that it's through faith and through faith alone for everyone. There's no distinction. Anyone who wants the righteousness of God that he freely gives can have it and can only have it through faith in Jesus Christ. First, Paul says, you receive it through faith apart from the law, okay? Being declared righteous before God doesn't come at all through your obedience. The only person who's ever, been, who's ever earned a righteous standing before God through obedience is who? Jesus, who obeyed the law perfectly. He was without sin. His righteousness came from within, we could say. The rest of us need a righteousness from without, from, from the outside, because there's no righteousness within. We need Christ's righteousness to be deposited into our account so that we can stand in the judgment, in the judgment of God on the last day without being condemned of our guilt and sin. We receive this righteousness, Paul says, through 
faith in Christ, apart from any works of the law. But we also receive it, Paul says, and this is the second subpoint. we also receive it through faith according to the law, all right? It's apart from the law, but it's also according to the law. Is that a, is that a contradiction? How is that possible? Well, Paul says in verse 21 that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, that summarizes it all, bear witness to God's saving righteousness. The gospel exists in, this, in seed form in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the law of Moses. They, the law and the prophets bear witness to the good news that you can be declared righteous by putting your faith in the crucified and risen Messiah. That truth, that gospel is proclaimed in seed form even in the prophets, even in the very first book of the Bible. This means that the way of salvation is the same in both covenants. In the new covenant, we're saved through faith in the head-crushing Savior. In the old covenant, they were saved through faith in the future coming, head-crushing Savior promised for the first time in Genesis 3.15. So, so never think for a moment that there has ever been a phase in redemptive history, in world history, where the way to salvation, the way to be right with God was by doing things, by doing works, by earning it. The Old Testament saints were not saved by earning it, by doing the, the law. If, if, they, if that was the way, then, then no one would have been saved, right? They were saved by grace alone, through faith. Through faith in the promises which all pointed to the Christ to come. Adam and Eve then were saved from their sins, their, their, their sin of disobeying God in the garden, eating, eating the fruit, doing it their own way. They were saved through faith alone. They were saved by believing the promise that God made to them in the garden after they had sinned. The promise that he would send a savior. And we see God even in the garden providing an atonement for them by killing the animal from which God got the, the, the skins, the, the clothes that they wore. So no one in the history of the world has ever been saved by works. Everyone has who has ever been saved, has been saved through faith in the Messiah. Don't forget that. The, the reason that it's, you know, it's not just a theological point that applies to people you know, two, who lived 2,000 years or more ago so that it has no application. The reason we get that doctrine straight and we believe it uh, is because if, if, we, if we don't get that, if we don't believe that, if we're unclear on that, it will have ramifications for our understanding of the gospel today. If it, could, if it could work for them, you know, if, it, if works could save them, then well, may, maybe, I can, maybe my works have to do with my salvation too. The law condemns, and yet it also bears witness to the saving righteousness of God, which now has been manifested. It's been revealed, not in the law, but rather in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why does Paul need to tell us this. 
Why does he need to say, and he says it more than once, he's going to say it more than once, even in this book, that we're declared righteous, justified is, is another translation. I, I like declared righteous. Why, that we're declared righteous through faith and not through the law. Why do we need to hammer on this? Why do we need to remind ourselves of this? Why does Paul need to remind us? Why do I need to remind you and myself of this? Because every human being, including every believer, including every person here, including the preacher, has a natural tendency to try to merit, in subtle ways, favor with God through good deeds, performance. In every one of us, there's an inborn inclination to try to earn our righteousness before God. And this doesn't go away when you become a Christian. It's not something we consciously do, perhaps, most of the time. You don't wake up in the morning and, and say to yourself, I'm going to do really well today, and, and, and if I do, when I do, God will like me better. He won't be mad at me at the end of this day, and he won't be tempted to disown me. Okay, we don't say that. Uh, that. That's not how the temptation to earn favor with God works. Your tendency to try to merit your righteousness is, is more subtle than that. It, it's, more, it's subconscious. But you know it's there. You, you know you deal with the temptation to earn God's loving kindness if you've ever thought that God likes you better when you're obeying him, when you're in his will. You know the temptation to work for God's love if you've ever thought that God is mad at you when you're not walking in the spirit. That, that he has this critical spirit and this, uh, you know, condemning spirit toward you. It's tricky, isn't it? Because we know that we, we can grieve God as children grieve their parents. But the problem is that we don't just think that we're grieving God. We think that our status with him is on the line. That our sonship or, uh, you know, daughterhood is, is on the line. Every time you think that God cherishes you a little bit more now because of your good conduct recently, or every time you think that you're in danger of being rejected as a child of God because of something that you did today or something that you've done recently, you're falling into the, and I'm going to call it a sin, of works righteousness. It's important to recognize it as a sin, not just a, a struggle, because it needs to be repented of. And, and what I mean by that is that the root cause of this works righteousness mentality are pride and unbelief, which are sins. Pride says that you can perform deeds that make you righteous or partially righteous in God's courtroom. That you can add to that verdict of righteous by, by throwing in some of the evidence from your, from your life of your good works that you've done. Unbelief says that God, on the other hand, says that God would 
never consider you, consider you righteous in his courtroom on the basis of someone else's righteousness, on the basis of Christ's righteousness. You see how that works? Pride says, I might be able to contribute. Unbelief says, God would never consider me righteous because of, I, it's, it, would be, it needs to be based on me. Accepting the gospel then requires humility and faith. And I, when I say accepting the gospel, I'm not just talking about that first time acceptance. I'm talking about believing the gospel throughout your life, every day. Growing in faith requires humility and faith. Childlike faith. Humility acknowledges that you could never do anything that would move God to accept you as his child. You could never do anything to compel God to declare you righteous in his law court. Nothing. That's what humility recognizes. Faith acknowledges that the only way to be accepted as a child of God, the only way to be considered righteous in God's law court is through faith in Jesus Christ and through faith alone. Well, it's a good thing God's righteousness has been manifested because it's the thing that mankind needs most. Point two, saving righteousness needed. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Westminster Catechism defines sin as any lack of conformity to or any transgression of the law of God. Every human person is conceived with the seeds of sin already planted in the heart. They don't, they don't get planted after, they're there at conception. And as the sinner advances in age, the seeds of sin grow and they bear fruit, nasty fruit. Nature runs its course. No one is exempt. But Paul doesn't just say that all have sinned. He also says that all fall short of God's glory. We, we could also translate that to say all lack the glory of God. It's this lacking, falling short of something that we shouldn't lack or fall short of. And it's our problem that we do. And so what's it mean to lack or fall short of God's glory? Paul assumes we've read the first two and a half chapters of Romans. So, so turn your handout over again so we can remember a few verses in Romans 1. We'll start in verse 21 and read through verse 23 on your handout. Romans 1, 21. For although they have known God, they have not glorified him as God or given thanks to him but have become futile in their reasoning and their uncomprehending hearts have been darkened claiming to be wise they have shown themselves fools and have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal humanity so that's the definition of falling short of God's glory the, the verb glorify there is used and the noun glory is used and so we see what it means to fall short of God's glory. You lack the glory of God when you exalt something in creation above the glory of God. And 
and that something in creation is, it can be anything that's not God. He's the only thing that's not in creation, you know, being that's not in creation. Now, now skip down to verse 25. It says, they have exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Paul might as well have said, they have exchanged the glory of God for the lie. And, and then the rest of this verse explains what it means to exchange God's truth and glory for the lie. They have worshipped and served the creature, Paul says, rather than the creator. Sin is idolatry. And idolatry is putting creation over the creator. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Uh, every sin is like the first sin. They were wise in their own eyes and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory that the devil offered them. Same temptation that the devil threw at Jesus, right? This glory, give you all the kingdoms, glory. But it's not the glory of God. And so they exchanged in the garden God's glory for the, tru for the truth. I'm sorry, for the lie that Satan was telling. They exchanged the truth for the lie and they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Well, look down in verse six, Romans 2, 6. Paul says that eternal life belongs to those who seek what? The first thing mentioned is glory. Adam didn't seek glory. He rejected glory. Christ sought glory and rejected vain glory, rejected, rejected false glory, satanic glory, worldly glory. But Adam rejected the truth and true glory. Sin is the rejection of God's glory as the highest value, the highest worth. Sin is the seeking after glory in creation rather than in God. Sin exchanges God and his glory for something else, anything else. Sin, you see, we need, we, need to, we need to remember this too. Sin is, it has to do mainly with God. It's a vertical reality. Sin is not fundamentally about hurting people, though sin does hurt people right? Sin is primarily about dishonoring God. Sin is Godward. God created everything and everyone to display his glory. Above all, you exist, you exist to glorify God every second of your life and to give thanks to him in every circumstance of your life. Those two things go together. The universe is all about God. All about God and his glory, including every bit of you. Every bit of you, every bit of creation is about God's glory by design. So there's a, there's a reason there's so much suffering and dysfunction and sadness in the world, even in the church, in mankind, because mankind is in rebellion against its chief end, its main purpose, which is to glorify God with a grateful heart all the time, every second. 
since creation was designed by God to display his glory, and since humanity is intent on defacing that glory and then glorifying everything else but God, we shouldn't be surprised that there is massive amounts of pain, misery, suffering in the world. This is also true at an individual level. Okay, this application can be applied to each soul on earth. Since you were designed by God to display his glory in everything you think, do, and say, and since you regularly deface that glory and seek glory in creation rather than in the creator, it's no wonder that you often experience massive amounts of suffering, sadness, dysfunction, pain, misery. Adam and Eve could have reached God's glory. It it was attainable. They could have reached the glory of God by doing what God required. God made them capable of perfect righteousness. They did not have a sin nature. No inclination to sin. No flesh to mortify when they were created. They could have been sinless. It was a possibility. Now now we know that in God's decree, God decrees everything. I'm not talking about at that level. I'm just saying that God made them, in one sense, able to obey perfectly. And if they had obeyed God's law, God would have declared them righteous. They would have been right with God on the basis of their obedience. But they fell short. And now all their descendants are born to fall short. And we don't just fall a little bit short. It's not like we're almost there. You know, we, we can see it. It's just right, But we all just inevitably fall a little bit short or a lot short. No, it, all of us fall way short. The most righteous person in the world falls short of God's glory to the same extent that the best long jumper in the world falls short of being able to jump across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, imagine we decided to have an an Olympic event to see who could jump from New York City to London. Okay? So that's the event. And, And one, now, so people show up, you know, when... One person might be able to jump 15 feet, you know, a good high school long jumper, you know, 20, I don't know, 20 feet, a little over 20 maybe. Uh, You know, college athlete, mid-20s, if the Olympic, uh, you know, guys showed up, you know, they're getting pretty close to 30 feet, all right? And, and, they, and they might be tempted to look down their nose at those who can't even jump 20 feet. But they're not landing anywhere close to London, right? That's, that was the, that's the standard. That's the goal. Yeah, that, that, the event was to see who could jump from New York City to London. And no one even got out of New York City. Everyone fell miserably short. And, and this illustrates the helpless situation we're in on our own 
in our nature. All of us sin and all of us fall miserably short of God's glory. Adam, though, was made with the ability to jump across the Atlantic Ocean, as it were. What I mean, of course, is that he was created with the ability to glorify God with a perfectly righteous life. But when he sinned, he lost the ability for himself and for all of mankind, for all of his descendants. We're all natural-born idolaters. We love many, many things more than God. We're uninterested, generally, in God's glory. We live for our glory. Rather than being enraptured by the glory of the eternal God, we're infatuated with the fleeting glory that we try to muster up for ourselves in this world, in this life. So each one of us is born with a massive problem, a massive deficiency. We lack righteousness. Okay? We, we can't jump across the ocean. Uh, the only problem with that illustration is it makes it seem like it's, it's impossible. But what God asked Adam to do was, was nothing like that, right? It was actually, it was actually easy. And it just seems like jumping across the Atlantic Ocean now because of our sin nature, because of our flat flesh. We lack the ability to even get close to measuring up to God's glory. So, so how can we be right with God? How can we be saved from our disposition, predisposition to dishonor God? How, could we, how can we ever be accepted by God if it's this bad? When all of us have scorned God's infinite worth so deeply by treating him as if he were of no more value than our weekend hobbies and friendships. The answer is that God has given us a righteousness. Specifically, he's given us his righteousness. That's how he kept his promises. Point three in your outline, saving righteousness given. In his infinite kindness, God has given as a, as a completely free gift, his righteousness to us. The saving righteousness of God is free of charge. You can't pay for it, you can't work for it, you can't do anything for it. Now point three has three sub-points. God gives us his saving righteousness in a declaration, by grace, and through redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we'll consider those three points in depth during the next sermon. That's why I said that in two sermons we're going to look at 25 and 26 because next time we're just going to focus on 24 and unpack these, you know, some dense theological words and ideas. Today, I just want to draw your attention to the absolute freeness of God's saving righteousness. He gives it to us. He didn't have to but he declares it to be ours. And he made a way, he made a way to give it to us. He couldn't just say, well, here it is, and I'm just gonna say it's yours, I'm gonna declare it's yours. He had to make a way for that kind of declaration to be possible in his 
in his economy of justice. And that way was sending Jesus to the cross. Actually sending Jesus to earth to live a righteous life and then to the cross to pay for our sins. And so we get the righteousness of Jesus. It's declared to be ours because we are united to him and what's his is ours and what's ours is his. Our sin is on him. It's a true gift given by God and received through faith in Jesus Christ apart from works of the law. Well, I didn't tell you the end of that, of that story, the, the story about Alfred Dreyfus, that French army officer who was declared guilty twice during two different trials and then pardoned and released from prison by the president of France. The stigma of being a traitor remained on Dreyfus even after he was pardoned. And, and remember, what did he really want? He even, he even said it in an interview, what he really wanted. What he, what he needed in order to regain his honor was what we can call the declaration of his righteousness. That, th- those aren't his words, but that's what he needed. That's what he wanted. Declaration of righteousness in a, in a court. Well, eventually, in 1906, seven years after his pardon, there was a third trial. And the evidence was presented again, and Dreyfus was declared righteous in the eyes of the court. He was reinstated in the French military, he was promoted, and he was even awarded the French Legion of Honor. So his standing before the people of France was no longer guilty, or quasi-guilty, you know, but pardoned, he was declared to be in the right. And you and I, don't, we don't just need a pardon. We don't just need our sins to, to be not, you know, uh, counted against us. That's, that's not what, what did God require of Adam? He required a positive righteousness, And so we need to be declared righteous. We need a sinless record, and we need to measure up to the righteous standard of the law and reach the glory of God, okay? You know, we we have to attain to it. That's, That's the requirement. So to be right with God, we need to obey all the commandments, we were made to do it at the beginning, but we lost our ability when Adam sinned. Nevertheless, we still need to attain to God's glory. We need obedience and sinlessness to be on our record in order to be right with God. So how do we accomplish this? Well, God accomplished it for us. We can't accomplish it. He accomplished it for us by becoming a man, by becoming human, by becoming a god Man, fully human, fully divine, 100% God, 100% man. And he jumped across the Atlantic Ocean on our behalf. He, he obeyed the law perfectly, unlike the first Adam and all of, all of his descendants. And if you are united to this God-man through faith, by believing in him, then his perfect righteousness, his sinlessness and his obedient, positive obedience it gets counted as your perfect righteousness, truly. 
If you are in Christ, then it, as, it is as if you never sinned. It's as if you obeyed the law perfectly. It's as if you attained to the glory of God. God looks at you as if you did the impossible. And it's not, just, it's not a legal fiction. It's not just a pretend game. It's true because you are truly united to the one who did that. So what is his is yours truly, really. If you believe in Jesus, you are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The gospel message in these verses is more important to you than any other writings in the whole world. Combined. They tell of the universal problem that every human person has, and they tell of the all-sufficient solution in the redemption of Christ. These verses accurately diagnose mankind's main problem, really only problem, the sin problem. And they provide the only true remedy. They, they tell us how God made a way for you, for everyone, to be declared righteous before God by believing in Jesus. If you build your life on these verses, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, we all believe them, right? I, it'd be hard to find somebody here who, who say they, they don't believe this. But if you build your life on these verses, if you put this paragraph at the center of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you meditate on these truths until they're in your bones, if, if the words in this text are the bedrock of your understanding of, of everything, of God and, and yourself and the world, if they become your most treasured possession, truly, if they dominate your thoughts, if they permeate your heart, if they pervade your home, if they come out regularly in your conversations, if they define your identity, if they go before you and behind you, if you consider them when you lie down and when you rise up, then you will be at peace in the midst of any storm. You will have the joy of the Lord in the midst of any disappointment. You will be steadfast in the midst of any temptation. You will be unwavering in the midst of every challenge to your faith. Intellectual challenges, temptations. I know when I'm talking to someone who is walking away from the faith or questioning the faith that they haven't put this at the center. This hasn't defined them in these kind of ways. It hasn't permeated things, pervaded their hearts and minds. When God and the gospel of Christ become the sun in the middle of the solar system of your life, all the planets gladly glorify the sun and orbit harmoniously around the will of God. 
But when you put these verses on the outer edge of your solar system, you know, you know beyond Neptune and Pluto, you can expect dysfunction, depression, confusion, frustration, idolatry, relational difficulty, spiritual defeat. See, there are some scriptural truths that are so fundamental to your faith, to, your, to who you are as a Christian, so fundamental that you should memorize them, meditate on them, read books about them, listen to sermons about them, and bind them on your heart with ropes, chains, paracord, super glue, gorilla tape, and any other adhesive you can find. They're that important. Cling to these verses like a drowning man clings to the rescue diver. You have to know how to rescue someone who's drowning because they cling to you with all of their might. And they can drown you if, you're not, if you don't know what you're doing. That's how you need to cling to the promises of God. Cling to Christ, who alone can give you the righteousness that you need, the, the righteousness that you need to be right with God, the righteousness that you need to walk before him with a clear conscience and to live before the watching world as a shining light. Let's pray. Father, we, our hearts are glad and we thank you for saving us, for making promises to save us and for keeping those promises to save us, even to your own hurt. Oh God, make us more thankful and Help us even this week to put these truths closer to the center of our souls. We ask for this for Christ's sake. Amen.